Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Action Replay on DCUFM. We are live on Twitch, twitch.tv slash DCUFM. Follow our socials, Twitter and Instagram. We are at DCUFM Sport. And catch up on our entire back catalogue as well as everything else on DCUFM by searching DCUFM on Spotify. Uh, joined again this week by Paul Morgan. Paul, how you doing? Good, thanks, Sean. Good to be on. And we're delighted as well to welcome Alana Conan back to the show. Alana, great to have you here. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Um, and there's only one place we can start really on a on a show talking about sport that hasn't been on uh, in a week before um, Ireland's qualifying campaign for the World Cup got underway. That was when we were last with you. Um, and we were talking, I think, Paul, you said we'd do well to do thir- to come third. We do very well to come third now. Um, but before we talk about the obvious thing to talk about, can we talk about the Serbia game first? Because that was a game that seemed to spark a bit of hope. Even though we didn't win, we played quite well. We did score. And it seemed like we were making progress. And if there was VAR in the in the stadium, we could have had a penalty and that could have changed the game completely and potentially changed the qualification campaign. So coming out of the game against Serbia, what were your thoughts? Yeah, there was a lot of positives to take from from uh, some aspects of the play, like especially Josh Cullen coming into midfield and, and a few other players that um, they, really, they really put it up to Serbia, especially... In the first half, um, at times they they uh, they kept the ball well. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't have said it was a brilliant performance, but it was certainly it was it was, it was certainly some some good signs in the in that match. And as to get the to get the two goals, um, put a big positive slant on it, having uh, really struggled for goals in the last while. Um, after the game, like I wasn't, I wasn't like terrible. Like it wasn't, it wasn't all all good. As in Serbia, still had a bit more quality. Like you could see with Tadic, like um, Ireland marshaled them well in the first half, but in the second half, he really like grabbed control of the game, grabbed control of the game. Um, but but uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, th- I don't think, I don't think it was quite, it was really enough for a pen- a penalty for that one in the first half, but um. Yeah, it was it was looking a bit a bit more positive after that game, although the results uh, put us on the back foot immediately. Yeah, it was a bit more positive after the game. Then Saturday happens, and I mean, what can you say? Really, it's up there with some of the worst moments I think in Irish Irish football history. We barely scraped a win against San Marino away in two thousand and seven, for which there was. A frankly unforgivable amount of celebration that we'd scored a last-minute winner and nicked three points against a team who currently are bottom of the FIFA World Rankings. Uh, 5-2 lost to Cyprus. That was actually in the Staunton era as well. And it's never really gotten that bad since then. I mean, there have been some bad moments. The 6-1 loss to Germany. The end of the Martin O'Neill era was particularly difficult. But... This was a low that we haven't seen in a very long time. No, yeah, that's probably one of is def, definitely one of the biggest lows. I don't remember either either of those games, but um, 
yeah, that it was it, it was just like for Luxembourg to be ranked ninety eighth in the world. Um, so yeah, it was just an it was just an awful result and awful performance. And as well as that, it wasn't just that you say maybe I was completely against my play because Luxembourg came into it like Rodriguez up front. Um, was really the best player on the pitch, I suppose. So you couldn't you couldn't say it was completely against the run of play. Yeah, Ireland had a lot of possession, but they didn't really threaten Luxembourg too much. So yeah, there's there's, there's not much there's not much you can re- really say really say about it. There was very little intensity to the match. Um, like even in terms of fitness, like a lot of Irish players haven't been. Playing with their clubs a lot, and it really, it really showed in this game because they didn't, they didn't press Luxembourg really at all. They didn't really put them under big pressure, and like any time they got a chance to break, it usually broke down within one or two passes. So yeah, it was disappointing. Brian Brian Kerr had a really interesting take that he said that this is, it's not fair to put this on the manager. I know Stephen Kenny hasn't had a very good time of it. He hasn't got a win yet as Ireland manager, but this, he said, is the product of systemic problems within Irish football that were that were sparked by the Delaney years of foregoing putting money into developmental systems and giving massive contracts to the likes of Giovanni Trapattoni and the managerial team and the corporate suites and all this. And that resonated further when I listened to Roy Keane saying... Ireland's group of players at the moment are of a championship standard. And I thought, yeah, that makes sense because we haven't developed enough players. And a lot of people were saying, you know, bring back Roy Keane, bring back Roy Keane, or excuse me, Robbie Keane. Uh, But that's a quick fix. Like, I think um, changing the manager would be a quick fix. I think... I, I think we can we, we've already given up hope of qualifying this World Cup for this World Cup, but I think we can give up hope of qualifying for the next World Cup as well. Cause I think this is the sort of problem that's going to take an extremely long time to solve because we need to put, in my opinion, more money into the developmental um features, the developmental portions of Irish football and just blood new players and those players are going to take a while to develop so I I feel Paul like this is going to be it's going to be a very long time probably four years at least before we can really start to see the bearing of fruit from from Irish football on an international level yeah I agree completely with with uh, that point on quick fixes like getting rid of the manager like they've been kind of wanting to kind of change the style the style a bit and like it's a it's a project it's not something that's going to happen straight away so if you're just to completely just get rid of it now it wouldn't it wouldn't really solve the issues um there's been a lot of talk about like the player the player development and i think i think there there is better players coming through maybe not all of them are going to be top not all of them are going to be top top players but there's certainly hope in that regard but it's kind of unfortunate that it's kind of these players have had to be like put like they're not even really getting the chance to play with the under twenty ones because they're having like players like Bazuna and stuff who just have to be put straight into the straight into the into the first team and um, 
like it's grand for players maybe from other countries maybe who are a bit younger but they get to come into like an established side whereas here they're kind of picking up the pieces and stuff there's not really players uh in their in their prime playing for Ireland at the moment and certainly not certainly not too many in the Premier League either so um yeah we'll take I think we'll take quite a while to get a get a really strong team again and yeah I was I was originally of the impression that I I did think it was a penalty against Serbia the VAR um well actually that's the that's the point there wasn't any VAR so I think if there was VAR in that stadium, we could have got the penalty. It could have turned it around. We maybe we would have got something about Serbia and took that momentum into the game against Luxembourg. Who knows? Again, that's a quick fix. But that does point to a, a problem with this qualifying. And this is where I'll bring you in, Alana. The fact that there are there isn't VAR in every single stadium. And I don't know if there's any VAR in these World Cup qualifiers. We saw... In the game again between Serbia and Portugal, uh, the same night actually as Ireland lost to Luxembourg, that Cristiano Ronaldo was denied a legitimate last-minute winner when um, his shot clearly crossed the line, but the 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 referees and the linesmen didn't see it. And not only was there no VAR to check it, there was no goal line technology to check it. And I think it at this level of the game, when you're determining who goes to the World Cup. The lack of that technology, Alana, I think is pretty unforgivable. Yeah, I suppose it's an interesting argument, Sean, because you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Like, uh, people are constantly calling on the uh, VAR in the Premier League to be kind of altered or maybe even taken away in some cases, I suppose, when the result doesn't go their way. But as you say, it really does uh, show the, not even fine margins, the clear uh, realities, I suppose, of... um, what it exactly it means uh like you say i suppose just before as we just before we came on there i saw um matic had up on a uh, bruno fernandez's uh locker when they come back from the international a picture of the line altered to suit the serbian point of view and um, so it is kind of funny i suppose in one way that it was that blatantly obvious but um it does um uh, reinforce that argument that VAR is kind of the way the way we're heading as the standard in um, football as a as a whole. I saw actually yeah, I saw something funny on Twitter uh, after the Ireland game. Someone said, "Well, fair play to the Ireland team for for boycotting the Qatar World Cup. It's the right thing to do." But uh, the World Cup qualifiers this week didn't go without a few protests. Germany were wearing uh, T-shirts that spelled out human rights, referencing uh, what's what's been going on in Qatar and some of the controversies, shall we say, as it relates to their preparations for the tournament. I think Norway did something similar. Uh, and FIFA announced that Germany wouldn't be punished, which I think is the right thing to do. But what do you think, um, Alan, of these sort of protests? Is it the right thing to do or should they kind of just hold their tongue? Yeah, it's it's an interesting debate to have, as you say, um, Germany and um, Netherlands and Denmark also have done the same. Um, 
since that report uh, where the 6,500 mi- migrant workers have died in Qatar. It's, it's, it's a debate that has kind of lasted the test of time, I suppose, whether political landscape should enter sport. And it has done before. Um, you saw with the Black Power Movement in the Olympics um, before. But um, it, I, yeah, I don't know. It's, I suppose... FIFA's FIFA's decision not to um, enforce disciplinary action is, as you say, the right thing to do because um, you couldn't really uh, infringe any any um, disciplinary actions on on a team for doing that. As you say, it is a human rights issue, and I suppose other right other human rights issues are being tackled amongst football at the minute. You look at the um, say no to racism movement, so I don't see any problem with it. Personally, I believe um, it should it should be brought into the limelight. These um, like wrongdoings that are being done, and I think it's a testament to the likes of Germany and uh, the Netherlands that are standing up to those because maybe it'll make make someone listen and make some change. But I do I think I think there's an argument to be made that this should have been done before Qatar were even awarded the World Cup. I think it's kind of too late doing it now, although I do respect their um, movement of doing so, I suppose. The Qatar team themselves have been playing a bunch of international friendlies recently, and uh, they've got Ireland tonight. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. Uh, We'll move on to uh, club soccer now, and we'll be talking about uh, the Premier League and actually the Irish Women's National League, which kicked off this week. But I want to begin with something much, much further abroad, and that's in China. And I read a pretty astonishing report recently that last season's Chinese League champions, uh, Jin Liang, I think they're pronounced, although I could be butchering that, are ceasing operations. They're not going to be part of the league anymore. And I was... Very, very interested by that because it seems as though, well, it is madness to think that Liverpool, for example, being thrown out of the Premier League the season after winning it, it doesn't really make sense to me. So I asked Bradley Sue of Action Replay to just give us his take on what exactly is going on in Chinese soccer. Yesterday, the Chinese Football Association announced the admission list of Chinese Super League in 2021 season. Jiangsu FC, the championship of the league last season, failed to qualify for admission. According to the rules, Changzhou Mighty Lions, which were relegated after last season, will replace Jiangsu FC to play in the new season. Apart from this, Tianjin Tiger, which has been infinitely close to be disbanded, submitted relevant materials to the CFA at the last minute and obtained the qualification for the new season. Suning Group, the investor of the Jiangsu FC, has had serious funding problems since last year and eventually had to sell some shares to a state-owned holding company. After the admission list was announced, many fans expressed their disappointment and regret about the result and believed that the result reflects the problems and chaos of Chinese football. 
the Chinese Football Association's policy to change the club's name to a neutral name has also been questioned. The purpose of investors investing in the club is to promote their own business, but they were forced to change their name to make investors no longer willing to invest in the loss-making football field. This is also an important reason for the closing down of the Jiangsu FC. At present. Most of the players in the Jiangsu team have freely transferred to other teams, but a 30-year-old main player today announced his retirement, which made the fans feel sad. It seems that the Chinese Super League will enter a new era, but there may still be many variables after the start of the season. European football fans should be more concerned about the future of Inter Milan, which is another team owned by Suning Group. There has also been some news about the sale of Inter Milan's equity by Suning Group, but I don't think the group will sell the team before the end of the season because Inter Milan currently has a high probability of winning the Serie A championship this season. Pretty fascinating stuff there, and thanks again to Bradley Sue for sending that on. Uh, we'll move on to um, to domestic domestic affairs. Club soccer a bit closer to home, and um, the women's national league in Ireland uh, kicked off this week. Uh, wins for Bohemians, Shelburne, Peamount United, Cork City, and uh, Galway. And uh, Alana, just wanted to get your your thoughts on this. What what teams? Should should we watch out for this season? Who are the favourites to lift the trophy at the end of the season? Yeah, Sean, I suppose as ever, it's um, Piedmont United who are the reigning champions at the minute and Wexford Utes and the pair actually did face off at the weekend um, in a highly anticipated uh, fixture. Now, it was kind of defensive in a way and I suppose the deadlock wasn't even broke until the closing minutes, but it was in ever-dramatic fashion um, as to be attested to those two teams, it's always a brilliant game. But um, after missing a penalty, um, Wexford Utes captain uh, Kylie Murphy uh, hit the post. The Peas then went up the field and scored a breathtaking goal from uh, Eleanor Ryan Doyle, possibly one of the goals, early goals of the season shouts uh, to rob the points off Wexford on their home soil. Uh, and we'll be keeping our eye on that for sure as the season progresses. Uh, we'll be talking about the Premier League uh, momentarily. That's um, returning after an absence of a couple of weeks. Uh, but I want to detour- take a bit of a detour towards uh, combat sports. Uh, in the UFC, we've got a new heavyweight champion of the world, Francis Ngannou, fulfilling the potential I think a lot of people thought he had. He just needs to fill out the holes in his game. Uh, he knocked out probably the greatest heavyweight of all time, Stipe Miocic, in the second round. Um, became the third African-born UFC champion. And now all the rage is about a potential super fight with John Jones, the the greatest light heavyweight champion of all time, who vacated his title and moved up to heavyweight. But there is a bit of a dispute going on between, it appears to be John Jones and Dana White, the UFC president. Jones's stance is he wants more money because he's moving up a weight class, he's putting on all this muscle, and it's a high-risk fight for him, so he thinks he needs to be rewarded thusly. Uh, and Dana White is kind of known to be play, to play hardball in these situations, so 
he's he's pulled a, a classic tactic out of his back pocket. He just said, oh, maybe John Jones doesn't want to fight. And he does this all the time. Oh, this guy doesn't want to fight. That guy doesn't want to fight. And it's a very clever tactic because immediately it evokes an imagery of, oh, this guy's scared. This guy's a coward. But what he leaves out is people's reasons for not wanting to fight. Maybe, oh, I can't fight because I don't want to fight because I'm injured. I don't want to fight because I feel like I should be uh, given some sort of monetary guarantee. I don't want to fight because I'm going through personal issues. He cuts out the because bit and just says, I don't want to fight and puts the fighter in a very difficult position, which um, is 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 shrewd, a shrewd business practice, but it's not it's not very morally defensible. But I do hope this fight happens. Be- and of course, and it should happen. And it would be a massive disappointment if it did, if it did not happen, not just because of um, the potential fight being ripped away from us, but also UFC is traditionally much better than boxing when it comes to giving people the fights that they want to see. There are myriad reasons that um, Anthony Joshua versus Deontay Wilder has not happened as of yet in boxing. Uh, but if it was in the UFC, the, the fight probably would have, would have happened twice by now. So UFC are normally good at resolving this sort of thing. Let's hope they just don't fall in, into the boxing trap. But speaking of boxing, uh, a couple of um, high-profile Irish fighters have had their next fight confirmed. Katie Taylor will be defending her undisputed lightweight title on pay-per-view on May 1st <clears throat> against... Uh, a woman she beat in uh, the Olympics on her way to winning the gold medal, Natasha Jonas of Great Britain. And I must admit, I'm a little bit disappointed by this announcement. I mean, I'm sure Natasha Jonas is a great fighter. She's she's unbeaten. But there, there were higher profile names that Taylor could have taken. I know from a purist perspective i wanted to see her fight um the french woman estelle mosley who actually beat her in the amateurs and won the olympic gold medal in 2016 that taylor won in 2012 or there were also you know potential crossover fights with chris cyborg and holly holm and super fights with amanda serrano who's also laying claim to being the best female fighter in the world she won her fight uh recently i think it was last week she got her 40th professional win so it's just it's one of those fights that i think you just have to get through and get the win and move on to to bigger and better things and uh, michael conlon is back in action as well uh a couple of uh, the day before that actually on april the 30th uh michael conlon fighting ianut baluta uh in at a at, in the super bantamweight weight class um, moving down from featherweight. So I think he's moving from 126 pounds to 122 pounds. And hopefully he can keep that undefeated record of his on his way to a potentially a world title fight. But we'll move back to soccer now and we'll look at the Premier League. And Leicester are playing Manchester City, which is massive for the top four. Of City can take another stride towards what seems like an inevitable coronation. Leicester are trying to keep their place at the top Four, potentially overtake Man United going to second. But before we discuss the game itself, we have to discuss the big news that broke yesterday. We've speculated a bit on the channel, or excuse me, on the show, 
uh, and it has been confirmed. Sergio Aguero leaving Man City at the end of the season. He goes away as their record goal scorer, having provided so many great memories, including arguably the greatest memory in Premier League history and certainly the greatest memory in Manchester City history when he won the title for them against QPR on the last day in 2012. And Alana... Is it even possible to put Aguero's achievements at Man City into context? Yeah, I mean, uh, just last year in January 2020, he overtook Alan Shearer, set the record for the most Premier League hat-tricks um, ever. And I saw a tweet, that's what I was trying to say earlier, um, him amongst you know some of the Premier League's um, greatest uh, goal scorers ever. And then it was just coupled with, and he scored more goals than all of them combined or something. But um, no, definitely, I mean, you can't argue his achievements. Um, after joining um, in 2011 from Atletico, he's amassed an incredible 257 goals in 384 appearances. I mean, that is just unbelievable. But I suppose the one thing that has kind of marked his card is that he has been plagued by injuries. And um, I suppose that is the one thing to his kind of detriment. But even regardless, with with only 14 appearances so far this season, he's been absolutely exceptional throughout his City career and will go down as one of the Premier League's greatest ever. We'll move on to the game itself, Paul. And um, this, I think Leicester are going to be so fired up for this game. If I if I remember correctly, they won uh, the corresponding fixture, and they will want to keep the the wolves from the door because there are plenty of teams um, battling it out for the top four. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Leicester, Leicester will be really, really, really wanted to get the top four place. Having, having been in such a strong position around this, probably a similarly strong position last year, it kind of all fell away. It kind of all fell away from from them, and they'll be really eager for that not to happen. I'd say like Ian Acho will be particularly like fired up for this game playing against his uh, for, former club. And yeah, they beat the their win against. And Man City, like when you think of what Man City have gone on to do, that five-two win was an outstanding result, an outstanding result. But I think ah, since since that game, Man City definitely focused more on their defense. They brought in, they brought, they had Diaz came into the team and Stones, and um, since then they've been much more, much more solid again in the in the back in the back. Um, but yeah, Man City have, after after uh, their loss to United, Man, Man City have. Gone back, got the wins, and um, yeah, I think they, I think they could uh, get the win again this this week. Sky Sports want to talk about Super Sunday, but uh, it really should be Super Saturday this weekend in particular, because not only is Leicester City on that day, uh, directly after that, it's Arsenal against Liverpool, who are both in very interesting positions. Obviously, it's a it's a pretty historically significant clash just because of the two teams that are involved but they they they've both been struggling as of late less so arsenal they seem to be um turning a corner um but do you think i i'm not too sure to be honest if liverpool will put an enormous amount into this game because they've got to be having their eye on um the champions league 
quarterfinal first leg against Real Madrid that'll take place just three days after that. So this could be uh, a golden opportunity for Arsenal to get a big win, Paul. Um, yeah, I think so. It's kind of hard to know now how Liverpool had some good performance in the Champions League. So it's kind of, and then we've had the break. So it's kind of hard to know just quite where their form is. But judging by their last few performances in the Premier League, the Champions League is their uh, their uh, priority. Um, they have um, they have Jota now to who will probably come back into the starting lineup. He scored uh, two header goals for. Uh, Portugal during the week, so, uh, yeah, so yeah, I think he he'll he'll if they well it depends if they start they might just uh they might just throw it throw complete throw completely and then go for the Champions League. I think that seems to be the way. So, yeah, it should, it should be an an opportunity for um uh, for Arsenal to to give it a good go. They've got no real well they they have the Europa League I suppose as well, so they might be looking at that. But they can they still should be going for the to try and get as high up in the Premier League as they can, uh, to try and get into, I suppose, qualification for Europe, Europe again. Um, some of the players, I think Pepe has been a bit, he really underperformed, but he's been um, brighter in the last few games. So I, I think Arsenal will, um, I think Arsenal will put up to Liverpool. I'd say probably be a draw, though. That's what I go for. Now, as we start to drift towards the end of the season, uh, we start to think about where everyone will finish up. We start to look at relegation and we start to look at promotion as well. Um, It looks pretty nailed on that uh, West Brom and Sheffield United are going to be relegated. But looking at the championship, it, it is equally obvious, if not more so, who is going up. Norwich City are streets ahead at the top of the championship. They look like they'll be claiming the the title. Uh, in second place uh, is Watford with um, 75. Although there, there is a bit of a chance that they could be caught because they're, they, they're six points clear, but the, the teams behind them, Swansea and Brentford, have a game in hand on them. And then you've got Barnsley and Reading rounding out the playoff places. And Bournemouth and Cardiff are on their tails. So Norwich and Watford look like they're coming straight back up. And those playoff places look really intriguing to, uh, as we, we take a look at the teams that could be replacing uh, the likes of Sheffield United and West Brom in the Premiership next season. We'll move on to, to rugby now. And the Six Nations tied itself up uh, on Friday night. It would have been over the previous weekend, but unfortunately there was a COVID outbreak in the French squad about midway through the tournament. Their game against Scotland had to be uh, pushed back. Uh, And that match took place uh, on Friday night and the mats for France looked pretty daunting. Uh, Bonus point win and uh, I think it was a 21-point margin of victory. And that was what they needed to do to take the championship from Wales. Ultimately, they failed to do that. Uh, Scotland not only kept them from uh, doing what they needed to do, they actually got the win themselves, their first win in Paris in 20 years. It handed Wales the championship, which I don't think many would have predicted um, 
before the tournament, I think Ireland probably had an equal chance and we didn't think that Ireland would win it. But that, for me, has kind of been overshadowed by by Scotland because Scotland have always been a team, and we've said it on the show before, that seems like they always had the potential to do it. You always come into a tournament in Scotland thinking they could. I mean, they're capable of it. They probably won't, but they could. Well, this is one of the first years I can remember for a very long time in which they did. They uh, won at Twickenham for the first time in a very long time. They smashed Italy to bits. To be fair, everyone does that, but they got themselves their record victory in the Six Nations, which is not an accomplishment to sneeze at. And then they went and beat France in Paris, which a massive achievement for them and the first time they've done that in a very long time. Um, they they did lose to Wales and Ireland, which did sort of uh, put, a, put a bit of a dampener on things. They were, but they, they were within a score in both of those games. And in a different timeline, we could be talking about Scotland getting a grand slam. So France ultimately didn't do enough and maybe... Maybe Scotland, I'm not saying France didn't deserve it, but Scotland did deserve it for their for their endeavor and for finally putting the pieces together. And Paul, I this this could mean big things for Scotland going forward. This could do them the world a good in terms of their confidence. Yeah, it, 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 this uh this result kind of capped off uh, a strong uh championship for them. They performed well in in all in all the games, all the games really, I suppose. Um, like they've had, they've had a few particular standout performers. Obviously, the captain uh, Stuart Hogg has been one of the best players in this year's Six Nations. Hamish Watson is very strong at the breakdown and very, very, uh, very good uh, tackler and carrier. Um, so they both led the team, led the team very well. Um, England in this yet yeah, they haven't beaten France or England in a, a, away in a long time, so they'll actually be a bit disappointed then that they ended up uh, not winning against uh, uh, Ireland and Wales. Although uh, I suppose the home that probably shows that home and away had very little impact on on the results uh, in this year's Six Nations. But um, yeah, they'll definitely be optimi- optimistic because it was. Re- before the game, we were talking, can France win by that much? But then, as the game, as the game went on, and the game was really in the balance, and it was, there was no question that France were going to come anywhere near beating them by enough. And I thought, even I thought uh, France didn't really, didn't really help themselves in that. Normally, they throw the ball around and try and score loads of tries, but this time they just were just taking the kicks. Like this was not really the game for them to play conservative. So they kind of changed their style up, which is a bit unusual. Uh, in the club scene, uh, Leinster won the Pro 14 again. They It wasn't a, a free-flowing Mon- uh, Leinster performance when they beat Munster uh, 16-6, but that in itself is almost more impressive because, as Leo Cullen said after, we've proved now that we can win dirty, we can win an arm wrestle. And it, it adds another layer of... Uh, adulation to this Leinster team that yeah they can tear you apart but uh with free-flowing rugby but 
if if you can get if you get them down and dirty, they 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 they're more than comfortable there too. And uh, now their attention will turn to the Heineken Cup, and they have a, a job on their hands. They're not seated in an ideal position for themselves. They are have they have a very tough task against Toulon in the round of sixteen. That game is. On Friday, I think. I think it's on Good Friday. Uh, the only other Irish team in that tournament is Munster. They have. A, they also have a home clash against a French team. They're against Toulouse. And it'll be very interesting to see what, how they can do in that. They, whether or not they can, they can convert their, their dominance in the Pro 14, obviously they both got to the final, into European dominance. Munster... Haven't won the European Cup in a very long time since 2008. Uh, Leinster have had more recent success. Uh, they won it in 2018, but then they were completely stifled by, I think it was Saracens in the final in 2019, and they didn't really get anywhere in 2020. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. But that's going to do it for uh, this episode of Action Replay. Uh, Alana and Paul, thank you so much for your contributions. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah, thanks, Sean. And also a massive thanks to Bradley Sue for providing that uh, that video about the Chinese Super League. We are on Twitter and Instagram. You can see it right there on the screen. We're at DCUFM Sport. If you want to catch up with any of our previous episodes, search DCUFM on Spotify. We're there along with the entire DCUFM back catalogue. And we'll be back here next week at 1pm on Tuesday twitch.tv slash DCUFM if you want to listen to us live right there. I'm Sean Breslin. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.